We'll be in 1 Corinthians 15 today from verses 20 down to verse 23, but let me read for us, beginning in verse 17. This is what God's word says, the words of the Apostle Paul. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord God, our Father, we thank you for the merciful and amazing God that you are, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. We thank you for the hope of Easter Sunday, and we ask that by your Spirit you would help us to Behold and see and perceive this glorious hope of the gospel. And that you would be magnified this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take the time to think about it, the world and humanity is constantly searching for a hope that it cannot attain. And this hope is the hope of permanence. The hope of perhaps, somehow, if at all possible, reverting what is the natural course of all things. Namely, how everything comes to an end by death. Everything. I mean, simply put, nothing lasts forever. Everything expires. The grass withers. The flower fades. Materials corrode. And our bodies eventually fail. And from dust we came, and so to dust we will all return one day. Friends, we live in a world marred by decay and death. But it wasn't always this way. God created the world as good and holy, teeming with endless life as his life-giving presence inhabited this world. God was with man, and man was with God, co-dwelling together in harmony and fellowship and love and joy and peace. But sin changed everything. When mankind rebelled against God, though created in God's image, as human beings, we rebelled against him, rejected him as Lord and ruler, and we insisted on being our own masters and live independent of him, well, it's only inevitable that we would suffer the logical consequence of death and decay because we have walked away from the giver and source of life. We've rejected the sustainer of life himself. And that's why the conditions of this world are what they are. Because ever since man's fallen to sin, throughout all of ensuing human history, death reigned. 
pain and suffering and sorrow and loss is what marks life on earth, the normal experience, until everything eventually comes to a head and terminates with death. Hence the timeless and universal adage, all good things must come to an end. I mean, what a sad proverb to describe life. What a sad world in which we live. I mean, this is not what the world was meant to be. And actually, we all know this deep down, don't we? There's something mysteriously built in us, an instinct, if you will, that knows to yearn for something different. We have this impulse within us to not be okay with the state of affairs, to not settle for and just accept it as the status quo. Yes, this is the world in which we live. Instead, we we know that something has gone wrong and that it's not supposed to be this way because God has put eternity into our hearts, as Ecclesiastes 3 says. And so our souls react with this intrinsic dissatisfaction with the perishable conditions of this world. And that's why we do everything to try to find a way to change it. That's why billions, if not trillions of dollars are poured in to the effort to prolong life by way of innovative medicine, to preserve civilization through renewable energy, and to conduct never-ending research into how we can become stronger, healthier, more durable. But all to what ends? All to merely delay the inevitable. That's the best we can do. And so the harsh reality is, there's really nothing we can do to overcome this natural course of death. It's like trying to undo gravity. There's only so long that you can keep yourself afloat until you run out of fuel. We are simply powerless to undo the curse of our fall into sin. But friends, this is the mercy and kindness of God. To a fallen and hopeless world, God has intervened with his answer, his solution, the hope of endless life once again. And this answer to all of our searching and all of our yearning, it is announced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all concentrated here on this day 2,000 years ago. Because look, this man 2,000 years ago, this Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth, he had made the bold claim that he was the son of God who came down from heaven to rescue sinners from their sin and ruin. And that he came to do that by taking their place and paying for their eternal punishment on their behalf. And so although he was blameless and sinless, he was crucified on a Roman cross to suffer the righteous wrath of God in the place of sinners who repent of sin and put their trust in him. Now, look, anyone can claim this, but Jesus proved this to be true by rising from the dead on the third day, just as he said he would. And thus demonstrating the power and authority of God. And so, look, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the indisputable evidence of the truth that he really is the Son of God. Without his resurrection, his death means nothing. Because anyone can die. I mean, we're all going to die. I'm going to die one day. It doesn't make me the savior of the world. 
But by rising from the dead on the third day, Jesus proved that he is truly the Son of God who came to save sinners by his suffering and death. But listen, Jesus' resurrection was not only for the purpose of delivering proof to us, although it is that too. But it wasn't just to substantiate factual evidence. But his resurrection 2,000 years ago was actually accomplishing something on a cosmic scale. Because you see, this was the first time that the natural course of all things was reversed in this fallen world. Although Jesus had truly died and gone down to the grave, all of a sudden, life sprung back up from the grave. Something has changed in the cosmos. Now, throughout history, there were other resurrections that occurred by God's intervening power, both before and after Jesus' resurrection. You recall in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah, he raised the widow's son in Zarephath. That's in 1 Kings chapter 17. And shortly thereafter, the prophet Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4. And of course, you read the Gospels and Jesus himself raised many from the grave during his public ministry. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, among others. And then throughout Acts, the apostles did the same by the power of God's spirit at work within them. But here's the thing. All of these resurrections, both before and after Jesus, they were all temporary. Because one, I mean, they were, they were meant to be one-off signs and wonders ordained by God for a specific purpose at specific points of redemptive history. And so when these people were raised from the dead, they resurrected back to the same mortal, perishable flesh. Now, don't get me wrong. It was nonetheless a stunning miracle, to be sure. Just incredible demonstrations of divine power that the dead came back to life. And that's why they were signs meant to point to God being at work in the prophet or apostle for the purpose of authenticating them as true messengers and spokesmen of God. But again, because they were only signs, everyone who was raised from the dead in the Old Testament and the New Testament They rose back to life into the same condition, same mortal flesh, meaning that eventually they all died again. I'm kind of sad they died twice. I mean, that's what what happened. Otherwise, they'd still be alive today. We'd be able to see them and talk to them thousands of years later. But no, their mortal flesh was still subject to decay. And eventually they all went back to the grave. But when Jesus rose from the grave, he rose to undying eternal life, to imperishable flesh, indestructible flesh and body. He rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven, never to go back down into the grave. You see, this was different. And as incredible as all the other resurrecting miracles were, this one was something bigger with cosmic ramifications because this resurrection was a signal of a new creation. God was announcing to the world that something 
has been reversed. A pattern has been broken. Everything falls to the ground in the end and returns to the dust. But here, on that first Easter Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, it's as if gravity had been turned downside up. And the hope of enduring life had dawned upon the age of darkness and death. A new creation was announced. And that's really the hope that mankind is searching for, isn't it? Whether we realize it or not. You know, I find this so interesting that uh, the big epic quest of the 21st century, with all of our cutting-edge technology and trying to push every limit and boundary known to man, that the big quest of our times is the grand mission for the sake of humanity's future and welfare is to send humans to Mars. Not just for a learning experience, you can do that with the rovers, but for the ultimate goal of what they call the terraformation of Mars, to transform it into a planet that can sustain human life. NASA believes that perhaps we can start sending people a few decades from now. Um, I don't know, good luck. I just I, I won't be volunteering. I'm happy here for now. But again, I find this so interesting that seeking a new civilization on another planet is the next big push, the big dream of our times, because it seems to be a sign, an indication that people have in some sense realized that they've exhausted every option of hope for this world, life on earth. And maybe, can we start over? Having learned from our mistakes, maybe this time we can implement our vision of utopia, a brave new world on Mars. Maybe there's hope there that we can't find here. Something new, something better, some unique resource that might be able to help us solve our problems and help us reach some human potential of vitality and durability that's currently untapped here on Earth. You see, it's very revealing that this space odyssey is the ambition of our times because we've subconsciously realized that we need a do-over. We need a new beginning and new creation. But you see here, what the world is searching for is that which only God can give and has given through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead unto imperishable glory and life. He is that very living hope. He is that new creation. And that's why here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, on, in verse 20, the Apostle Paul uses a very interesting term in reference to Jesus' resurrection. He says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for those who have died. That Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruits of those who have died. Now, what does Paul mean when he says first fruit? Well, what is a first fruit? Well, I mean, it kind of means exactly what the word says. It's the first fruit. Uh, we, we see this in the Old Testament as God commanded the people of Israel to offer the first fruit of the harvest to him once they entered the promised land and each year thereafter. The, the best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, he said in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. 
And so God told his people to offer in faith the very first crop of the harvest, the very first of their return on labor. Now, why did God say that? Well, because he knows that we all have a tendency to hoard it out of a spirit of self-sufficiency, to worry, to be paranoid. Oh, maybe the harvest won't be so good this year. And this first fruit, this first batch is all I'm going to get. And so let me then hold on to at least this because I worry that I won't have enough. And this is what we do, don't we? We're control freaks. God knows that. And so God was teaching his people to let it go, to trust him. And that by giving up the first fruits to him, that it would be an exercise of faith. Trusting that what they offered up would be the first of many more to come. That God would never fail to provide sufficiently for the needs of his people. And so look, the word just means what it says, the first fruit. The very first produce that the new promised land would yield. But actually, this concept of first fruit goes even further back in the Old Testament to the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Why don't you turn there with me in your Bibles? Genesis chapter 1, the account of creation. And here we see how God created the world and he ordered it all in six days. And if you look in verse 11 of the first chapter of the Bible... Verse 11 brings us to day three of creation as God brought forth vegetation. And it says in verse 11, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, if you're wondering what we're doing here and what this has to do with first fruits, let me pose the question like this. You've probably heard it said and even used this expression. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And actually, this is a philosophical question. It's called the causality dilemma. And we use it idiomatically in everyday speech often just to describe a situation in which it's impossible to determine which one caused the other. Now, for instance, I see on the news a lot these days regarding uh, electric vehicles. The issue is people don't want to buy electric cars because there's not enough infrastructure for them. But there's not enough infrastructure for them because not enough people are buying electric cars. Which caused it? Which came first, chicken or the egg? Who knows? Doesn't matter. That's kind of the point. It's impossible to determine. But actually, if we were to ask the question literally, which came first, the chicken or the egg? The Bible has a very clear answer. And the answer is, the chicken. The chicken came first. God, in his act of creation, brought into existence chickens. And then they laid eggs which propagated more chickens. See, God created the birds in the first week of creation, not eggs. God created the mammals, not embryos. Now, why is this important? Because in the same way, we can ask the question, which came first, the fruit or the seed? And Genesis 1 tells us very clearly, the fruit came first. Let the earth sprout vegetation and fruit, and so it came into being, 
instead of having to wait and water and get some sun and, and wait some time. The fruit came first with seed in them already so that the fruit would reproduce and bear the next generation of fruit by their seed. This was God's purposeful design. And so the fruit created in Genesis chapter 1 was the original fruit, the first fruit of creation. Every fruit today can be traced back to the original first fruit on day three of creation. And notice how verse 12 says, So the earth brought forth plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. In other words, when God created apples, he didn't put avocado seeds in them. That would be kind of weird. God put apple seeds in apples. And same thing with avocados. He put avocado seeds in avocados. And so each first fruit passed on its nature and kind to the next generation of fruit by their seed. The original first fruits of apples set the pattern for all future apples for generations down to today. And so you see, the first fruit is essentially the first domino, the pattern setter, the head which defines everything that comes after it down to the tail. It is the beginning, the head of creation, the commencement of a new posterity. And Paul is saying, this is what Jesus Christ has come to do and to be for sinners, to be the first fruit of life, eternal and unending and undying, the hope of a new creation, the reversal of the curse of sin. Because you see, our problem is that the whole human race has been polluted by sin, down from the first man, Adam, to all of us. We are all rebels against God, deserving of death. And what's been propagated since Adam is the fallen nature of sin and the consequence of death. That's why back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in verse 21, For as by a man came death, as by one man came death, as in Adam all die, because we all belong to Adam, the first fruit of death. And every human being that came after him has followed in his likeness, according to his fallen nature and kind, inheriting his sin and the consequences thereof. Now, before you blame Adam for everything, hey, we have an Adam here. Before you blame Adam for everything, the truth is that you have willfully, personally, individually rebelled against God. No one has ever made you sin. No one forced you into walking away from God and disobeying Him. You did all of those things volitionally. You, you, you've willingly imitated the rebellion of your ancestor and forefather. You've lived by your own decision and will according to Adam's sinful disposition. And so apparently, you would have done no differently if you were in Adam's shoes, if you had been the first fruit of humanity. And so because we are the seed of the first fruit of sinful Adam, that's why the whole world is marred by decay and death. That death is the, is the result of sin, you see. But, but, but see here, the, the amazing grace of God, rather than leaving us to our ruin, He has broken into this endless 
unbreakable pattern of death by bringing forth a new first fruit of life and holiness and righteousness. Jesus Christ is the new head, the new Adam. He rose from the grave unto endless life as the hope and answer to this fallen world, a new creation. In fact, have you ever wondered why it was on the third day that Jesus rose from the dead? Why not on the second day? Why not on the fourth day? It wasn't arbitrary. God never does things randomly or carelessly. But friends, Christ was raised up on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, namely in accordance with Genesis chapter 1, which tells us of the first creation as God brought forth the first fruit on the third day. And Jesus, the first fruit of life, was raised on the third day to fulfill God's salvation plan of the new creation, the new Genesis. And he didn't rise from the dead just for his own sake. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? For as in Adam all die, but in Christ all who are in him shall be made alive. And at his coming, all who belong to Christ will be raised to glory and immortality, just as he was. Jesus rose from the grave for the sake of sinners, that they might turn from their sin, put their trust in him, and thus belong to him by faith to become his seed, as it were, to inherit his life, his righteousness, his blessing, his holy nature as our first fruit. This is the good news of the gospel, that if anyone is in Christ, he can be and is a new creation, forgiven by God, cleansed of sin, born again by faith, and sealed with his promise of the gift of eternal life. Christian, while in this life, you and I will experience death still. We will die and perish from this world, though we be in Christ. Because although we are no longer of the world, we are still in this world, still in the vestige of our old mortal flesh. It's not that when you came to faith and you were born again, that suddenly your body changed. You remained the same. But your heart was born again from within. So we will die, even as believers. But take heart that this is exactly according to God's plan of salvation. Our eventual bodily death does not mean that our belonging to Christ is somehow questionable. But to the very contrary, remember that this is no different than the experience of our Lord Jesus himself. He came in the likeness of our mortal, perishable flesh. Remember, He experienced death just the same. This is how united you are to Him. And there is coming a day, brothers and sisters, when we will experience His glorious resurrection for ourselves. Because Christ shall return and the trumpet will sound, and we will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed into his likeness of imperishable glory, never to die again. And all of God's promises will be consummated and realized, and our faith will become sight. 
As the Apostle John reminds us in his first letter, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Church, cling by faith to your risen Savior. Let him be your enduring hope through every trial and struggle and hardship in this life as you follow him all of your days. Trust him, obey him, and honor him, and I promise you, it will be so worth it on that day of your resurrection, your bodily resurrection. And if you're here this morning and you do not belong to Jesus Christ by faith, I deliver to you from the word of God this amazing good news. This is the glory and joy of Easter. That Christ has risen from the dead and his resurrection is hope for a world lost and ruined in sin. Do you believe this? Do you believe that this world is fallen in sin? You better believe it. I mean, it's patently obvious. Do you believe that this world is fallen in sin? Yea, do you believe that you are fallen in sin and that you need a Savior who has died and conquered the grave for sinners like you? And if you don't believe this, can I ask you, what is your hope in life then? What can this world offer you but empty promises? And wishful thinking. Those prayer emojis. That's the best you can do. Do you really want to put your hope in this life only? It's but a band-aid at best. And the greatest promise and solution that this world has to offer is just a nicer band-aid, a bigger one, a more premium brand. What hope do you have, friend, in this life? Let's be honest, there is no lasting hope in this life only. Your soul yearns for the hope of eternity, which God alone can give and which God offers to you now by the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. This is not a myth. It actually happened, a real factual historic event 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Friend, trust him. Put your faith in him. Put your hope not in man, not in the princes of men, but on God. He is good. He is merciful. He is generous and gracious. He will never do you wrong. Jesus has already paid for sin and simply calls you to confess your sin and trust in what he has done to atone for it. And look at his kindness in freely offering to you the gift of of eternal life that you nor anyone in this world can attain. May it be that God would open your eyes this Easter Sunday to behold the truth of Jesus' resurrection and to embrace the salvation that is found in him alone. And these things have been written and inscripturated for you in God's word so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the risen son of God, and by believing you may have life. In his name. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your inconceivable love and pity 
for hopeless sinners like us. And that looking upon our despair, looking upon us drowning in death, Lord, you sent your son to take on the experience of death, to to be made for a little while lower than the angels that he might taste death so that he might conquer it, that he might overcome the grave, not only for himself, but that he would take sinners unto himself, unite himself to them who turn to him by faith and raise us up with him. Thank you for this hope. Oh Lord, may it be that we would rejoice in this gospel hope and proclaim it to a world so in need of this hope. Oh Lord, be glorified and continue to magnify your risen and ascended Son, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.